Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Welcome along, good people, to episode 202 of the Howie Games Part A, featuring a brilliant tennis player and a wonderful young man, Alex Demonor. Demonor defeats a Titan in a career-best win. The first time he's beaten the world number one, he gets Team Australia off to the best possible start. Bit of a short intro this one, because I want you to get straight into the episode. This is a behind-the-scenes, like way behind-the-scenes look into life on the ATP Tour and what it takes to climb up the rankings from over 2,000 into the world's top 10. What I do want to say, though, before we get rolling is having never met Alex, he is an impressive person that has ever appeared on this show. Yes, he can play tennis. Yes, he has a phenomenal work ethic and the fiercest of desires to win. But more than all that, Alex's respect and loyalty to those that have been involved with him on his journey that's what really hit home to me. So you search and try to find, but you don't know where to go. So many thoughts flood through your mind. You're confused and want to know. Mystery, what is to be? So much more than meets the eye. Listen to me, time is your key. You will find out by and by. Thanks to Catherine Oyeni, part of Alex's team, who not only made this episode happen, she did it in world record time and is an absolute beauty. So thanks to Catherine, good people surrounded by good people. Thanks also to two of Alex's partners, Wheatbix and Asics. Nice shoes they are too, the Asics, for helping out as well. Alrighty, enjoy the story of Alex Demonor, a man that must make his parents incredibly proud. So when you search and then you find know just where to go and thoughts that once used to cloud your mind you see clearly and now you know mystery what is to be revealed in king selassie i come on children try with me we want to reach mount zion wow this is outstanding this came together rather quickly and easily, and it's credit to this man and his manager, Kath. This man is a true international, spends a lot of time in Spain, Australia, plays tennis all around the world, and beams into us from Monaco, which I think is rather fancy. His name is Alex Demonor. Great to see you over there in Monaco. How are you going? Happy to be here. Thanks for having me on here. Mate, so happy to have you on. So much to cover with you, but let's start with Monaco. Uh, I had the pleasure of working on the Formula One coverage in the late 1990s, early 2000s, so went there a few times for the Grand Prix. Love the Grand Prix there. But I've always thought it must be a fascinating place to live. What? Tell me about day-to-day living in Monaco. To be honest, it's, um, it's quite weird. Uh, it's not something that I think I'm still used to. I come from both, you know, Sydney and a small town in Spain where I'm kind of more used to the simple things in life and this is uh, quite extravagant and fancy. So um, it is a little bit weird, but saying that, uh, I've got the the tennis courts um, about one minute drive from my house and, and that's basically where I spend most of my time. Quite boring that way. Where are you in relation, because I know the Grand Prix track by the back of my hand, where are you in relation to the Grand Prix track? Are you overlooking it? Are you on a certain corner? Do you look down on it? Where are you? Look, it would be nice if I was overlooking the, the track at all. I'm, uh, <laughs> uh, I'm just to the left of the casino, so I'm about okay. five-minute walk from the casino. 
And are we talking a 19-bedroom house here or a little one-bedroom bed and breakfast? Like, uh, what, uh, what are you going with? A little shoebox, yeah. That's that's more like it. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, right now, um, yeah, I've got my whole team here and we're currently uh, sharing a one-bedroom uh, apartment. So, And there's three of us here. Right. So fancy. And again, from my memory... I was obviously there during the Grand Prix and it was frightfully expensive. I remember buying a beer as a 22-year-old Alex and it nearly broke my budget. How are costs there in Monaco? Like if you're going out for a for a, uh, a latte and a focaccia, what type of damage are we talking here? Well, uh, I'm very big into going out and having breakfast outside of my place, right? I really enjoy going to little coffee places here and there. That's kind of the Australian in me. I uh, love a latte and avocado on toast, a pastry, uh, whatever. The first day I I kind of spent here, I went out to have my little, found a nice little coffee place. I had my my latte and, and a pastry, uh, just a pan of chocolat, like a chocolate croissant. Yep. And I went to pay and it was uh, 12 euro. Right. <laughs> Probably in Aussie dollars, we're looking at about, what, 20 Aussie dollars right. just for coffee and a uh, chocolate croissant, which was uh, a bit of a fright. <laughs> so from then on, I've been uh, going to the local the local supermarket and I've been getting a nice big bowl of cereal every morning, which is a little bit cheaper. Well, so that was my next question. Is it a Coles or a Woolies? Like, what, what's the local supermarket set up in Monte Carlo? As you probably already know, Monaco isn't that big when it comes to size. So uh, I literally walk out of my apartment and I walk five minutes and I'm in France. So I actually go and shop in France in yeah. a in the supermarket line called Carrefour, which uh, you know has everything I could ever hope for. And the boat, whereabouts is your boat positioned in the harbour, Alex? <laughs> Ah, uh, for the boat. Uh, yes, I, I decided to go for a boat and live in a shoebox. That's uh, the way my priorities have gone. Um, no, I think I've got to win a couple more matches for for the yeah. boat. Yeah. And trust me, if I have a boat, I'll be uh, front line watching the Formula One. Have you ever been there during the Grand Prix or are you always off? We, we talked about how international your job is. Have you ever been there during the Grand Prix or are you always off playing tennis? No, normally it's on whilst uh, the French Open is, is on. Ah. So it's uh, I've never actually made it. I've had people come and, and stay at my place to actually watch it, which I've been a little bit jealous of, but uh, I've never had uh, the opportunity to come and watch, which I would love to one day. Surely, like, your mates must pile in on the text message when the Monaco Grand Prix is on, knowing that you're not there and you've got an apartment. Exactly. I mean, I'm, I'm quite friendly. Uh, I'll offer it to anyone. At least someone can enjoy it whilst I'm not there. So Outstanding. Me and MJ, our Howard Games team here, we'll be there for next year's Monaco Grand Prix. We're going to be sleeping on your floor, mate. We're good to go. Uh, sounds good. Lock it in. <laughs> now, mate, before we get into your life and times, I have a couple of kids that normally ask a question of the guest. Um, they started off as six-year-olds and four-year-olds. My daughter just turned 14 now, which I find truly frightening. In wow. fact, it's a horrific state of play. Yeah, I know. I don't know how it happens. But the one that is most engaged 
is the one that asked the question, Alex. Normally it comes at the end of the show, but it's quite relevant. So she enjoys her tennis and she was very keen to ask you a question. So her name is Sky, but she rolls as the Pickle. That's her nickname. We the love pickle. her nickname in Australia, as you know, Alex. Yeah, the Pickle. So you, you're ready to take the question from the Pickle? I'm ready. All right, here we go. Hi, Alex. Pickle here. Congratulations on being world number 12 in tennis. That's amazing. There's only 11 people better than you. That's so cool. I reckon that the most famous person I've met is Shane Warne. I met him from Dad's work. But we watched the Grand Prix in Monaco and there's lots of famous people there and you live there. What's the most famous person you've seen in Monaco? There you go. Ooh, that's a great question, Pickle. Um, <laughs> okay. the I would probably say the most famous person I've seen uh, is probably some of the F1 drivers. I've seen uh, Bottas, uh, Valtteri Bottas around and Charles Leclerc. Right. Yeah, they, they've been around. They also, uh, I know Charles uh, likes, loves his tennis, so he comes to watch the tournament as well. And, and this year, actually, to the tournament in Monte Carlo, uh, we had uh, Neymar in the stands watching. Not not my match in particular, but uh, he was over there in the stands watching and taking the tennis in, which was pretty cool. That is, I'll tell, I'll tell the pickle that, yeah. and she'll be. She probably won't know who Neymar is, but uh, I think he's pretty tight with Lewis Hamilton, so he seems to go to yeah. a lot of uh, Grand Prix as well. Neymar, so mate, I'd love to talk to you about your journey, but we see you all arrive in Australia around this time of year, the lead-up tournaments, Brisbane, Sydney, then the Australian Open, and then you disappear. And it always leaves me thinking, I wonder what life actually is like as a professional tennis player when you're not on television, when you're in the hotels, when you're travelling and training. So I'd sort of love to explain that with you in depth about what's involved and, and how you get better and how you move you up the rankings. But firstly, tell me, mate, a little bit about your family history because, as you say, you've almost got – I know you're, you're a proud Australian, but you've got Spanish roots as well. Tell me about, a bit about your family history so we can establish where you are in the world. All right, so I've got a bit of a complicated history, uh, a long one yeah. at least. Uh, so my mum is Spanish uh, and my dad's from Uruguay. Now, they met in Australia in Sydney and that's where I was born. Uh, now, I lived there till I was five years old and then we moved to Spain uh, altogether. We were there for eight years. So um, when I was 13... We moved back to Australia um, and I kind of really started competing at this stage and really started to take my, my tennis seriously. And basically three years after that, uh, the whole family moved back to Spain and they've been there ever since. Wow. So it's been a, a bit of back and forth. And how did your mother and father meet? You said your, your father, have you been to Uruguay? Have you been to Montevideo? You have? Uh, I have been to Uruguay. I've been twice. Uh, right. Years ago, I played a junior tournament there and I was able to go and visit the, well, not too sure you can even call it a town, um, the place where my dad uh, grew up and, and was born, uh, which was wow. a pretty cool kind of uh, experience. Now, my parents, they... They met in Sydney. My dad at the time uh, owned uh, an Italian restaurant and <laughs> my mum started working as a waitress. 
Wow. So how, how did your dad end up? Um, I love stories of people that move around to the other side of the world for opportunities, et cetera, because they're always, you know, you know it's, it's like uh, me moving my family to Uruguay. Yeah. It, it's a very different move. H- how did your dad move from Uruguay to Australia? What was his journey? Well, he migrated when he was 18, uh, not speaking a lick of English as a, wow. as a steel mason, basically. Um, and he uh, started working there, uh, helping out building tools and certain uh, equipment um, for a couple years. And eventually... Along the line, he started working at a restaurant <laughs> and decided to try something out with a couple of his friends and kind of the rest was history. It ended up uh, kind of buying them out and it became his. Wow. And so you would have grown up in a multilingual household then? I presume Spanish was spoken at home? Exactly, yeah. Right. I was born in Sydney and basically I, I spoke English and, and Spanish, Spanish in the house, English essentially outside of the house. So you're a young man. How old were you? Did you say you were five when you moved then to Spain? Yeah, that's correct. So what, why the move to Spain and what are your first memories of Spain? I, I guess at five, six, you're only just starting to have a couple of memories. Do you remember anything about the trip or the adventure and why was the family all of a sudden going to Spain? Well, the family uh, went back to Spain essentially because, you know, my mom hadn't been back in a while and... Uh, uh, ultimately, my my grandparents on my mum's side, um, they they lived there, so it, it was kind of a made sense to make that move. And uh, my dad was also interested in in starting up some some business in uh, in Spain uh, and giving it a shot. So mm-hmm. early days, I remember the basically the trip being never ending. I remember it felt like it <laughs> took like a week to, to get to this random new place that I had never been. Um, but yeah, it's uh, a little bit later where I started to create some of my, my memories. Obviously, I uh, started going to school there and, and kind of started to, to begin my, my young life there. Your tennis journey, with all young athletes that you, you can read, there's sort of urban legends about where they started, etc. There's a little bit of information about where you started, but how, how do you first get into tennis, Alex? Well, my, my parents, uh, especially my dad, he uh, was a tennis fan, uh, loved tennis. Uh, when I say loved tennis, he watched every single match there is to watch um, to the point that uh, he taped them all on the VHR and when I was uh, old enough made me re-watch uh, Wimbledon finals, uh, you know, <laughs> watch Rod, uh, Rochi, Newcomb, <laughs> we're talking uh, Connors, Bjorg, McEnroe, like I, I've, I've watched all the generations basically. Um so he, he basically, when I was four at the time, signed me up to a lot of different sports um, and essentially it, it was uh, golf, which he always loved, uh, football, soccer and tennis. And, and yeah, I 
I love being outdoors and I loved all three of those sports. I read a quote from your mum in a, in a fantastic article by Courtney Walsh, who was also involved in making this happen. So we appreciate that. And your mum was quoted as saying, you went down to tennis and an early coach said, no, no, you, the man has too much talent at age. I don't know what age you were and whether this is fact or fiction, but the man has got too much talent for what I'm trying to roll out here as a coach. Is this true? If we're talking about Australia, um, yep. then we're talking about age four or five. So uh, I'm, I'm assuming that would be a little bit too too early to make a, a big claim like that. But um, no, that's where, that's where I started. Uh, and I just remember from the very get-go, it was something I loved and, and I was, I guess, fortunate enough that I had some decent hand-eye coordination and I wasn't too bad at it. What did you love about it? Your first memories of tennis, like now that you're a professional, it's your, it's your job, it's what you do and what you dedicate your life to. But as a kid, Alex, what grabbed you about tennis, mate? Well, early days, I think um, I just enjoyed it. It was something new. It was fun. I was outdoors. I was chasing around trying to hit tennis balls, yellow fluffy balls for, you know, all day, which which sounded like fun to me. And, and to be honest, what really got me hooked was the first time I competed. Um, and that was like a whole, whole nother level. Uh, so where and when's that? Tell me about this. Your, your first, your first competitive match. I presume you're in Spain now? No, this is actually one of the trips we went back to Australia for holidays. Uh, okay. So first tournament, I'm seven years old. Um, and it's at White City uh, in Sydney. Oh, and, wow. and basically, alongside with having my first ever hit on grass, uh, there was a, a like a local tournament of, of some sort, don't really remember. And basically, first time I, I ever competed. And I remember just, you know, walking in on court thinking, you know, it's all fun and games, like, how good is this? And then realizing very soon that there was no no way I wanted to lose to, to my opponent uh, and it became very serious very quickly so yeah from then on just the the excitement and adrenaline of of being of winning uh, just took over and and ultimately I won my first tournament and and from then on and that's that's all I wanted to do. So your very first tournament, you, you won. Are we talking a massive cash pot prize here at age seven? Are we talking a, a, a wheat bix voucher? What are we going with, Alex? We're, we're talking about uh, a trophy, which uh, I right. was so proud of um, that uh, on the way home, basically I got back to uh, my parents' restaurant and I was taking a photo with it and I accidentally dropped it and half of the oh. tennis racket just snapped but we we glued it up and, and it's still intact but yeah that's a that's a funny little story from from that moment your your current coach here yeah, he's been with you for a long period of time that's correct uh he's been with me 16 years adolfo gutierrez wow. um yeah it's uh it's been a, a pretty special ride uh we started from from early days um since I was a, a little munchkin and, uh, yeah, we've been able to grow together and, and it's pretty, a pretty special journey, which is not done 
yet and uh you know hopefully we can achieve the the best in this world so you're saying you well you're 24 now 16 years so you you're with Adolfo since you were 8 and i think that's you know we see coaches be changed out left, right, and center in the world of professional tennis. I think that's probably a reflection on you and your values that you're with the bloke that so he's been coaching you since you were eight. So talk about knowing your game inside out. <laughs> that's exactly it. I mean, we spend a lot of hours together, and uh, to be honest, he he's kind of been like a uh, you know a father figure, a second father to me. Um, He's kind of known since day one everything that's gone on in my life and um, what I've always appreciated is, uh, you know, the things he's been able to do for me from, from a young age and, you know, it goes from basically when we were in Spain and we weren't in the best financial um, spot, you know, coaching me for free, letting me hit, um, and yeah, all all these things uh, just just makes it a very special connection, and and I'm very happy that we are uh, in the spot that we are right now, and you know, still with a lot of hunger to improve, and hopefully got a lot of a lot of big memories uh, yet and achievements yet to to achieve. I don't mean to pry. You talked about not in the best financial spot, and your coach did it for free. So, is this one of the reasons you come back to Australia? Is this sort of uh, GFC time or what, what's happening with your family and your situation at yeah, that point now? Basically, uh, especially in Spain in 2008, there was a huge financial crisis uh, that hit. And yeah, it hit us uh, quite, quite hard as well as uh, the majority of Spain. And mm. yeah, it, it kind of made a lot of things difficult. Business, uh, at the time my dad's... Uh, Car wash wasn't wasn't going too well. Um, got hit pretty hard, and yeah, we we needed a little bit of help, and um, we were actually fortunate enough to still have uh, the restaurant in Sydney, uh, which kind of provided an outlet, and basically was our you know our only move to go back to to Sydney and. Look, uh, at the time it was uh, a huge move because even though I was born in Sydney, at the time every real memory I had 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 been in Spain. All my friends, mm. school, growing up, uh, training at the tennis club with Adolfo, all these things, and I had to kind of put that aside and as a family we all had to kind of move back to Australia, which was... Yeah, it was a big move at the time. Back to Alex shortly. Next week on the show, we are stepping into the world of professional wrestling with the sensation that is Rhea Ripley. Born in Adelaide, Rhea is now a megastar, one of the biggest draw cards in the whole WWE caper. Rhea screaming in the face of the champion, it's my time, and it might be... That is Rhea Ripley next week on the show. Let's get back to Alex. 
I love where people have come from, Alex, and I love obviously how much your family has supported you. Um, obviously, you don't play tennis for the money. I think there's a lot more to you than playing tennis for the money. You, you've won $3.5 million this year, I think $10.5, million, $11 million US in your career. If I, I think that's reason to be accurate. I don't want to shortchange you where you are. And then obviously, there's a lot of costs. But how does that strike you now? And what are you able to give back to those around you when you are earning what most people would look at and think, well, that, that's a lot of money and you've, your family's had a period of time when things haven't been easy. And what does that mean to you? Well, it ultimately it means the world. Um, it's probably, it's tough because you don't really, really think about it when, when you're a kid. Uh, ultimately, you're playing for, for yourself because you're enjoying it. Uh, but they got a stage that, that everything became quite real in the matter of fact that you start thinking that you're playing for more than just yourself and it's the people around you, it's uh, your family, it's, it's making sure that uh, all the pain and suffering and everything that uh, they've done for you, you can at some point repay them with and you know that's ultimately my goal in in my life is to to make sure that my my family doesn't have anything to worry about uh you know hopefully for the rest of their lives uh, as well as the people around me i'm sure your parents must be very proud of what you do on the tennis court but as a parent if my son or daughter spoke like that in 14 or 15 years i'd be extremely proud of them so i think it shows you the quality of person you are. I, I said to you, mate, I, I want to um, find out about what happens behind the scenes of the tennis tour. So when we're talking about money, so you win the Mexican Open this year, you get that magnificent hat and then they give you the big cardboard check. I presume you're not going down to the Bank de Monaco and presenting the check. So how does it work? You win on a, a Sunday, does it money just get wide into your account or how does that part of your job work? So one of the biggest misconceptions of, of all of this prize money in tennis yep. is that yes. a big number you see is uh, pre-tax, right? So ah. uh, wherever you are, whatever country you get this prize money in, uh, you're always taxed in that country and you're kind of depending on what tax bracket it falls under in that certain country. Okay. Now. The big fancy check that you saw from Acapulco, you probably yep. got to deduct about thirty five percent, right? So that, that's for starters. Yep. What happens afterwards is basically in that instant I played on the Sunday, I finished at about one a.m. and uh, I had my flight to the next tournament at nine a.m. Uh, huh. the following day, because. Um, as tennis is, you always got the next week. You don't really have time off to really savor the win or anything like that. So, I mean, we were on the flight next uh, at 9 a.m. onto the next tournament, which at this stage was in New Wales, and we were starting in three days' time. So, gosh, that's kind of the logistics of things. Now, the whole money part, well, they're normally pretty good. It takes about uh, about a week, a week and a half uh, for it to get into your account. But it's a it's a nice nice feeling once it once it hits the account. That's for sure. So you're already explaining to us things that I don't know, and the general audience won't know about what your actual professional life is. So, at what age does young Alex think? Okay, I don't want to be an airline pilot or a plumber or a scientist. I want to be a tennis player. 
Well, this for me was a decision that had to be made quite early in in my career. I think uh, when we moved back to Australia um, and I was 13, uh, I had a big decision to, to make and this was either to go into the Sydney Academy, uh, go full-time, which meant, uh, you know, studying, doing homeschooling uh, mm-hmm. at the academy or going to normal school and, and kind of training in the afternoon squads. Uh, now, for me, well, basically for, for my mum, my mum's always been a, a big strickler for for studies and, and it's always been super important for her. So this was a big decision in the whole context of um, I got told, I realised that if I was to make this decision to go full time, this was the first moment and from mm. then on everything I did in my life and in my career was towards becoming a professional tennis player because, you know, it was a huge thing to not go to school at that stage uh, of my life and I had to make sure it was worth it. So from then on I flicked a switch and and it really meant that, uh, yeah, tennis is my life now and I'm going to do everything in my power to, to make it. You're obviously a tremendously dedicated athlete and we'll get to preparation and what you have to do to, to compete with the world's best. But as a 13-year-old, on a typical day at the academy, Al, how, how much tennis are you playing? How much training are you doing? How much work is going on to becoming a professional tennis player? Is it like two hours a day or eight hours a day? <laughs> yeah, there were, there were pretty long shifts and, and it's not something that I was used to, to be honest, because I came from uh, the club in Spain, which I used to train in the afternoons after school and you know, it was, uh, you know, it was always fun. It was nice and easy. And uh, I went to Australia and all of a sudden I'm in a full-time schedule. Uh, this meant that every morning we were on court from 8.30 to 10.30 a.m., uh, followed by 11 till 12 gym, followed by 30 minutes of lunch, and then 12.30 to 3 was... Uh, our schooling and if we were hitting in the afternoon it meant 3 30 to around 5 uh hitting and then Jeez. maybe recovery uh after that so yeah it, it was it was pretty full-on and it was definitely a shock to the system that's a great explanation of the dedication required the the Wherever you go when you first come, when we first saw you at the Australian Open, it was like, oh, had to choose between Spain and Australia. Dual nationalities, could have played for either. And congratulations um, in your recent Davis Cup performances, mate, and Australia making the finals a couple of years in a row. It was outstanding. It was an outstanding TV, and I'm sure it, it'll go. You're on the Aussie boys' way very, very soon. But why Australia over Spain? Like, you've explained it to us. Your formative memories are, as you said, really Spain. So when I hear that, I think, oh, I'm I'm probably going to be playing for Spain. But you've come back here as a 12 or 13-year-old and you've chosen to represent Australia. Why that decision? A difficult decision or not? Well, look, I think uh, as you probably get to know me and and get to see some of my decisions in in my life, uh, for me... um, 
when I was in a time of need and I needed help, um, yep. Australia was there too with open hands and, you know, had, had my back from, from day one. And that for me is the biggest thing ever. And, and from then on, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a loyal guy and, and these things do matter a lot to me. So from then on, I was all day. It was the easiest decision ever. I mean, when, when I needed the help, when I was, uh, definitely struggling, Australia was there and Tennis Australia was there to help me out and, uh, I'll be forever grateful and, you know, I'll, I'll do everything in my power to make them, make them proud. Oh, mate, there's no doubt they're proud, and I'm pretty sure Australia's pumped you chose Australia. But h- how does it work? Like, have you got blokes from the Spanish Federation, Ola Comestas, Alex, and then rolling out their pitch? Does it does it work like that? Because you know you you're a, a valuable commodity for both tennis organisations. Well, it's funny how these things happen because um, it took about maybe when I was 16 for for Spain to come uh, knocking on the door with a uh, nice okay. nice deal. Um, but, yeah, that's, that's what, what I mean. Um, you know, it's about who the people that are there when you need the help, and that's the most important thing to me. So when you play your first professional match, when you play your first match where there's prize money on the line rather than a trophy that you then went and broke at the restaurant? First professional match was a... Yeah, I guess you can say uh, futures, right? This was um, I played a futures in Spain. I played there were three, and I was probably fifteen, about to turn sixteen at the time. And huh. yeah, I've basically to essentially to get an ATP point to get on the ranking, you had to go through qualifying and you had to win your first round match. So ultimately, you got to win four matches. And those three weeks, I lost first round of qualies, second round of qualies, and in the third one, I lost in the first round of the main draw. So I was essentially one match away from from getting my first point. Obviously, it wasn't, wasn't good enough, but... Um, I was able to kind of come back the next year and kind of achieve that. So that that first series of events, what's your first – oh, we talked about the big check. What's the first time and what's the amount of money has gone into – I'm basically trying to build your ranking yeah. and your earnings and where you've got to today from the start so people understand where you've come from, where you are now. So like, what, what do you reckon your first check is? Yeah, we're probably talking about 150, 200 euros. That's uh, – Okay. That's the first that's the first check. That's that's when I know I've made it. And your opening ranking the first time Alex Demonor comes on the world tennis rankings, what is that number? It was like 2040 or something like that. Right. That's one point. Okay. But when you think about it, like you know, you drive around country Victoria where I live on a Saturday, there's a lot of people playing tennis. Oh, I don't think 2040 in the world's actually that bad. It's there obviously you not paying a living, but that, that, I think that's pretty good numbers. Yeah, it's not too bad, eh? <laughs> I, think, I think it's good. Well, we'll get to where you are now. Okay. So when do you, in your mind, 
become comfortable on the court as a professional tennis player? Is there, a, is there an age? Is there a level of training? Is there a certain tournament performance? Is there a certain play you've beaten where you thought, you know what, I'm okay here. If I continue to work, I'm going to be okay. Ooh, um, there's probably two stages of this question because I, I do feel like there's almost two separate tours uh, in okay. the whole game of tennis, right? I think yep. you've got the 2000 till 250, which is kind of like, you know, your your tour where you're, you're grinding your futures, uh, your low-level challenges, and you still, you're playing professional tennis, but you might not really feel like a professional tennis player yet because you're not playing the tournaments where the big guys are, right? Yep. And then, so just hold that thought for a moment. Before we go into the next part, yep. tell me about life as a tennis player from 2000 to 250. Tell me about some of the more unusual places you may have played, some of the hotels you may have stayed in. Oh, like I'm not sure you're staying at the Crown Resorts in Melbourne when you're at between 200 and 250. So tell me about that experience because I'm sure a lot of players never get past that point. Well, you're talking about uh, basically avoiding costs at a max, all right, because we're talking right. <laughs> this life is expensive. So this sounds like this sounds like the, this sounds like the backpacking of world tennis to me. That's exactly it. That's that's what it is ultimately. I mean, uh, we're talking about you. Say you win a futures, you're probably getting about two thousand euro, three thousand maybe. It's it's peanuts when when you when you talk about all the expenses that you've got to endure and and look after. So. A lot of my first tournaments, there were futures in Spain. Um, and what that meant was basically you're traveling by car anywhere you can. <laughs> it's step number one to, to avoid costs. Yep. And then we're talking about staying in hostels, <laughs> which cost eight euros a night. Backpackers, basically. <laughs> I can imagine you're rolling into the backpackers and you've got your 15 t- rackets over your back and oh, yeah, I'm, I'm a professional tennis player. They're like, you're sure you are, pal. Yeah, yeah exactly. It'll be eight euros a night, mate. Uh, <laughs> no no <laughs> discount. Um, no, it's pretty <laughs> funny. Um, my first final of a futures, um, yeah, I basically stayed at eight euro a night um, hostel. And wow. I got to my room, obviously, basically backpackers, communal showers, everything. I was in a room with eight bunk beds and <laughs> I guess I was fortunate enough that I was the only guy there. But to be honest, I was pretty pretty scared about leaving my stuff at, in the actual room. So I, I would take it every day to the courts and yada, wow. yada, yada. But yeah, that's uh, that's basically the life. I mean, you can't, you're not making much and... and you've got a lot of expenses, so you've got to find your way of surviving uh, through those ranks. And ideally what you do is if you can win as many matches as possible and kind of get to the next level of tournaments, which are challenges, and then all of a sudden you're starting to get a little bit more money. It's not crazy amounts, but it's if you have a good week, then you you can breathe for... For a month, maybe. So it's it's living week to week. So just before we move on to 250 forward now, you're obviously an extremely respectful 
athlete and young man, but have you got to a tournament somewhere, not necessarily in a negative frame of light, where you thought, I can't believe I'm playing tennis in X? There was a stage I was 260. Yep. I played some ATP events. I'm playing challenges. I'm I'm on my way to basically feeling like I'm a, a tennis player. And I just finished Wimbledon, right? So... I lost in the second round of qualities of Wimbledon. Um, yep. So, yeah, made, made some, some cash. Uh, but the problem is that to make it into the qualifying of the US Open, I yep. needed some points because uh, I was very much on the fringe. So uh, I decided to go and play uh, two futures, which obviously would have been my first futures in in a decent amount of time and they were in Portugal. Mm. So basically I needed to go out there and win at least one of these events to guarantee myself qualifying of the US Open um, in a couple months' time. So, yeah, I get there. Obviously, uh, motivation isn't, um, (laughs) you know, as high as it probably would be to play uh, Wimbledon. Uh, So I've gone from Wimbledon to this uh, futures and look, honestly, I was very lucky that the first future I played was on this place next to the beach. Um, the courts were overlooking the ocean. It was, it was great. I mean, it's probably the best future I've ever played, right? And I was like, oh, this isn't going to be too tough. So I have a great week. I, I win the tournament, actually my first ever futures title. And then we go on to the next week. Uh, and the next week, it's in basically the middle of nowhere. Uh, and we're talking like the hotel was 20 minutes away. There was one restaurant. Are we still in Portugal? It was just, we're still in Portugal, but we're right. just middle of Portugal. Um, <laughs> and we get to the, we get to the place and, and we look at, at these courts. They're, they're basically like concrete courts right there. <laughs> They're almost like old, I don't know, schoolyard courts. I've, I've never seen anything like this, right? She's a long way from Wimbledon. Yeah, I was like, you know, I'm just, yeah, this can't be it. Yeah, maybe these are the practice courts. I, I don't really, you know, understand where, where are the match courts. And, and it's just a row of three courts here in the middle of nowhere, right? No, no, these are the match courts. Right? And, and obviously uh, that's when it all kind of sunk in that, this was going to be uh, a very tough week mentally. And, yeah, basically what ended up happening, um, quarterfinals of that event, uh, probably another event that I, I should have won comfortably. I, I lost to someone who, who I probably shouldn't have lost to and, uh, and I told myself that, yeah, I've got to make sure I never come back here. That is the end of Alex Demonor Part A. Plenty more to come in Part B. 